Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the context in which we are living today. Through Christian scripture and our various traditions, what guidance can we find and imagination can we practice as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and practices of repentance and liberation? My name is Reverend M. Jade Barclay, or just M. My pronouns are they, them, and I am the director of an organization called Enfleshed, where we create and facilitate spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. I am Southern grown, but currently residing in the Midwest, in the place currently known as Iowa City, Iowa, but first home to the Iowa, Oto, Omaha, Pawnee, Sioux, Sauk, and Meskwaki peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians. White Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians, and those of us who might identify in the realms of Christian-ish or Christian-adjacent, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, especially through the Christian tradition. Any of us white folks who have grown up with a relationship to Christianity, whether conservative, liberal, evangelical, or progressive, have inherited Christian-specific facets of white supremacy that we have the power and responsibility to unlearn and imagine anew, including our conception of the divine. We do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado, in December 2014, led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. As we move into our reflection today, I am going to invite us into some grounding through a little prayer from our library at inflesh.com. Breathe in your inherent belovedness. Breathe out the lure of toxic cycles. Breathe in love that makes your heart soft. Breathe out any anger that is being misdirected. Breathe in acceptance that all cannot be immediately solved. Breathe out the need to control. Breathe in the wisdom of ancestors who labored for collective love and justice. Breathe out the temptation towards the superficial. Breathe in a breath of humility. Breathe out all that makes you shrink. And then remember the trees, their giving and receiving of breath. See them holding so much for us. Offer a confession and a prayer of gratitude and let your roots sink deep into the soil of God.
All right. The text I'm thinking about today is Luke 15, 11b through 32. I'm going to read it for you with a slight adaptation of my own. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the enslaved people, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the enslaved people and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like an enslaved person for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came back, who has devoured your property and spent all your wealth on his own pleasure, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Okay, y'all, I gotta start just by saying, like, <laughs> this, I, uh, I have a hard time with this text, um, a real love-hate relationship with it, and maybe not even love-hate, but, like, respect hate. <laughs> um, there's just, there's so much, uh, I have baggage around this story, and I think culturally we have a lot of baggage around this story, um, historically there's a lot of baggage, and the story is kind of about baggage, isn't it? I like family baggage, um, but let me just go ahead and get, like, a few things off my chest about this passage. 
um, bear with me or like get it off your chest along with me. <laughs> um, but you know, I'm just kind of struck by in reading it, I'm just so uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable in that like, it's these three men, you know, like struggling with each other about the sharing of resources. <laughs> uh, and I, what I don't mean to do is dismiss the significance of what's happening between the three of them. Um, I am, I, I am not of the general practice of like, uh, dismissal as a concept, right? Like I, I value, um, whatever is happening between them is significant. Um, and tending what is happening between them matters. Uh, but, and I also have this sense while I'm reading it of like, okay, it's not that I'm trying to dismiss, but I am, I am trying to bring, I, I'm having feelings about the erasure of, of what else is, um, what else is going on here, right? So, um, when, when, uh, something like a group of three men, uh, at having relational conflicts about resources then erases other, other realities, that's when it's a problem, right? Um, and so I'm just, I'm just feeling aware as I read through this text of like, <laughs> the the ways in which like these resources are being passed uh from father to sons um and you know the feast is unfolding uh and they're they're frustrated with each other uh while there's zero mention of any of the women in the family um, who probably have no say over how and when the resources are shared. Um, and then you have the folks who are enslaved, like passively mentioned. Um, we never get to hear from them. Uh, wonder what they would say about like these resources being, um, sort of fought over in the family, right? Um, and then you have derogatory references to sex workers in ways that I just... It's so unfortunate how that gets perpetuated in the telling of the story over and over again. Um, but, like, <laughs> I just, you know, the way that the older son is sort of shaming and blaming the younger son by referencing sex workers when I'm like, please give the inheritance to the sex workers. Like that, that is the, that is the, the parable I want. Right. Um, that would be, um, a wonderfully just thing in many, many circumstances. Um, so I'm just, I'm feeling the awareness of like how I wish the, you know, resources, sure, sure, in the parable, but, but also more, more so in the ways in which these realities continue to uh, unfold in our own uh, cultures today, right? Like, I, I, I want this conversation of resources uh, to uh, become more expansive and deeper and uh, bring other people in. Um, 
So I'm feeling that as we, <laughs> as I read it. Um, and I'm just aware of, yeah, how, how rarely, um, how easy it is, I should say, um, how easy it is to, to not notice, um, where else these resources might, might be used and, um, who does and doesn't have access and who, who does have the privilege of sort of being offended about how the resources are tra tra uh, traveling in the family and, um, who, who isn't even given a, given the opportunity to, um, to feel like they've been burned by the father because there's no world in which the father would have ever given them the resources. Right. So anyway, so that's one thing that is complicated to me that I'm bringing to, uh, to this podcast today. Um, and then I also just like, I have so many feelings about how this, this story has been interpreted. And, um, and that's not because I have some clear, like, sense of where I land on the story. I think that I'm constantly challenged in ways I really value by the story. Like when I, when I just don't like it, um, I like the ways that I'm still a little uncomfortable with, with the idea of just rejecting it. Right. Um, because I do always want to be sort of, uh, tethered to the concept of uh, an abundant, forgiving, celebratory love, um, especially when that love is sort of characterized as uh, gods in the sense that not a single individual needs to or can or is expected to, I don't really know what language I feel good about there, but um, sort of embody the entirety of it at any given time. Um, but I, I do, yeah, I value, there's absolutely something about the kind of uh, excessive, abundant, uh, un, un, uh, uncompromising love in this story that I deeply value and I, and again feel that value when I think about something like uh, God uh, and I pause because I'm trying to think about it like what do I mean when I say that I mean um, yeah something something beyond solely the individual capacity to, um, love. Uh, and I, what I, <laughs> the other part of me that doesn't like the story, um, is, is certainly, I think, responding more to how it has been interpreted in many, many contexts, especially contexts of whiteness. Um, that includes my own conservative upbringing. Uh, the, this story feels like one of the most commonly referenced stories that like, you know, was always a kind of way of, um, I associate it with many different contexts. I'll spare you the stories, but um, I have memories of being in spaces where 
where the story was used in that sort of pivotal, pivotal conservative moment where you're getting in touch with your quote unquote sin. Um, and you know, there's a lot of sensationalism around it, uh, sort of heightened pressure to self shame and self negate and self hate. Um, and often a lot of drama around it. Um, I'm thinking, uh, one of my own experiences as a young person in a retreat situation that I was a part of many, many years, um, but started when I was 15 and there was this, uh, one night where the story is centered and, and just like thinking about all the teenagers who, uh, were encouraged to think about, like, think about themselves in the worst sense of, of sort of original sin, right? Just really heightening any sense of, again, quote unquote sin. And I say it that way because uh, the things in these contexts that are called sins are, are often not what I would call sin by any means. Um, and the things I would are often not included. Um, but, and then there, you know, of course, being a moment where once we have sort of reveled in how terrible we are, then there's the come, coming home to the father figure who accepts us, um, and, uh, forgives us and changes us. And, um, and in the retreat, I was referencing that, you know, after this, this, sort of sensationalist approach to the story, then we would all nail our sins to the cross, like actually do that. Um, and whew, what a thing to do to 15 year olds and 16 year olds and 17 year olds. Um, but that is, that is one sort of example of a larger, uh, white conservative culture of, um, the concept of, sort of sin and, and forgiveness between a person and God personified uh, and the interpretation of the story as the younger son and the older uh, and the father, right? Um, and then I'm also aware of like how even in, in sort of white liberal uh, Christian context, um, I'm uncomfortable with that interpretation I associate with that too, which is often a like kind of, um, again, a like m major emphasis on individualized, again, quote unquote sins, um, and, uh, a kind of narrative that makes God, makes the Father God inherently, which I love how Jewish New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine pushes back on that as, uh, uh, like needing to be the only interpretation. It could just be a parable about a family. <laughs> um, but, you know, the ways that the, the forgiveness of God uh, manages to just let whiteness off the hook all the time, <laughs> um, but doesn't extend that kind of forgiveness often in the direction of, uh, BIPOC siblings, um, 
and doesn't really wrestle with what accountability and repentance look like. It's like the ideal um, forgiveness story of whiteness's, whiteness narratives, right? Because there is no accountability in the story. There is no, like, there's nothing but some lip service to repentance. Um, actually, there's not even repentance. Um, uh, so... So I just have a lot of really complicated feelings going into it. <laughs> um, and I don't know, I guess that's one thing I really value about scripture is like, I don't know, I've, as I've been thinking about recording this today, I've been in a million different places about which way to go with it. And I've read so many different uh, good and interesting takes on engaging this text. And, um, and I've been really going back and forth. Yeah. on which, which kind of which way to go. Um, but I also just love, like, one of the things I love about scripture is being able to like, just kind of bring everything to it. Um, and, uh, there being space for that and it kind of being a, a great container for some of the realities of either past or present or uh, complicated feelings and realities and both ands and all of that. Um, and I'm personally often more interested in what is happening in an encounter with the text, with the scripture, than I am any sense of there being like a original intent with the scripture, right? Um, and so I guess whether I mean to or not, I'm sort of being authentic in the sense that I, I'm, I'm having an encounter with this text, right? And these are the things that are happening. <laughs> and um, I'm just bringing you along for the ride, I guess. Um, but there is is one thing that um, I I found myself sort of lingering in and feeling a valuable um, uh, invitation by uh, by another in engagement with this text, and that's uh, by thinking thinking alongside it with the work of Mia Mingus. I feel her work opening a new way for me into this text. For me, it feels good to break outside of some of the ways it's been normalized in my life. And I love that because certainly not all the time, but many times I do personally find value uh, in both deconstructing a bad relationship to a text or an idea or a practice, etc. And also, when possible, find a different, more generative way to connect with it. This, for me, sort of both disrupts some of the power that the old way has over my relationship to a thing, like scripture, uh, but it also enables me to keep growing in other directions and not just get stuck in a sort of permanent relationship to my problems with something. And so with that said, uh, I turn to the work of Mia Mingus, who describes herself this way on her website called Leaving Evidence. Mia Mingus is a writer, educator, and trainer for transformative justice and disability justice. She is a queer, physically disabled, Korean, transracial, and transnational adoptee raised in the Caribbean. 
She works for community, interdependence, and home for all of us, not just some of us, and longs for a world where disabled children can live free of violence with dignity and love. As her work for liberation evolves and deepens, her roots remain firmly planted in ending sexual violence. And specifically with this text, I'm thinking about her work on apologizing as a part of accountability. We do not live in a culture in which apologies are done well. Many of us grew up with parents who struggled to apologize, who normalized other ways of managing conflict and harm in our everyday relationships. Some of us were taught to over-apologize. Some of us were taught apologizing as a kind of weakness. A lot of us who are white have not been trained well in navigating conflict in our relationships. And so again, drawing on Dr. Amy Jill Levine's work in her book, Short Stories by Jesus, she reminds us that parables are intended to give us new insights. Sorry, parables are not intended to give us new insights as much as they are intended to remind us of old wisdoms easily forgotten. It's often the simple stuff that our faith draws us back to. And one of the things that she argues often gets lost in the telling of this story in particular, uh, that would have been perceivable to listeners at the time, is just how much the younger son could be heard, not as one righteously returning with a sense of honest learning, but instead one who turns desperately to what is familiar and trustworthy a father who will give him what he asks for. She notes, quote, Further suggesting Junior's lack of remorse is his line, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Biblically literate listeners would hear an echo of the empty words Pharaoh mouths in order to stop the plagues. She quotes the scripture. Pharaoh hurriedly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you says Exodus 10.16. She goes on, The prodigal is no more repentant, has had no more change of heart than Egypt's ruler. Homiletician David Buttrick concisely summarizes the, pr the prodigal's strategy, quote, I'll go to daddy and sound religious. <laughs> Ultimately, Dr. Levine will go on to make the case for the older son being the lost son, the one right in front of the father all along too distracted by family patterns and dy dynamics to notice. Situating the story back in the context of lost and found narratives, Dr. Levine notes that we are left without a clear conclusion. Do the father's efforts to mend the relationship between him and the older son end successfully? We do not know. She says, quote, the parable shows us that indulgence does not buy love, referencing the younger son, but withholding it can stifle it referencing the older one. I want to end with a brief imaginative exploration of the younger son in all of us. Like him, we may not necessarily turn to the scriptures to do our apologizing for us, but we may turn to rote phrases we are familiar with or to whatever it is that we know will land for the one we're apologizing to. And when it comes to matters of whiteness in particular, it's like even our half-assed attempts at holding ourselves accountable can often barely make it out of our mouths before parties are being thrown in our honor by cultures of whiteness. There is some relatable stuff here in this story. But what would happen if the younger son did show signs of actual remorse and genuine repentance? 
Mia Mingus notes that her framework for apology works best in close and intimate relationships where the harms are of a certain size. This isn't how severe violences are to be tended. But it is through the everyday, ordinary practices of repair in our relationships that we begin to build the spiritual tools necessary for genuinely tending the larger conflicts among or between our communities. She writes, If we cannot handle the small things between us, how will we be able to handle the big things? Learning how to address these smaller hurts or breaks in trust can help us learn the basic skills we need to address larger harms. If you cannot have a direct conversation with your friend about how they hurt your feelings or the toxic language your roommate used, then how will you be able to respond effectively to sexual violence or abuse in your community or family? Among the four parts of accountability, she names self-reflection, apology, repair, and changed behavior. I love how she talks about the need to do less of, quote, holding other people accountable and more of, quote, working to support people to proactively take accountability for themselves, which I would argue the father hardly gave the young son an authentic chance to do instead cutting him short before the tending was even beginning. This shift requires a total change in culture and values, and I dig it. And like so many hard things, I believe practice makes them possible. And yes, there is grace enough along the way. May we make it so. In this week's call to action, I'm inviting us to practice our apologies, not to be equated with accountability on their own, but as one of four parts, alongside reflection, repair, and changed behavior. Look for genuine and authentic opportunities to break patterns and cycles within you and around you. Read through Mia Mangus's work linked in the resources section of the transcript and apply them in the small, ordinary stuff that shows up in your relationships. Build your own spiritual muscles around taking accountability for yourself and think about the kind of relationship cultures you want to cultivate that support others in holding themselves accountable. And remember, practice makes possible. Thanks as always for joining us. We'd love to hear from y'all and especially folks of color and non-Christian folks by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages or filling out the survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you check out our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, where you can sign up for Surge Faith Updates and find transcripts for every episode, which include references, resources, and action links. Next week, we'll have a resistance word from Nicola Torbett. And finally, so much gratitude for the work of our sound editor for this episode, Claire Hitchens. As always, we appreciate you so much, Claire. Thank you. And to send you off this reminder, love is accountable. 
Love cares about the harm it does and also believes in repairing when possible. So love apologizes. Love breaks patterns and practices of dominance, defense, and destruction. Love is all of these things and more, abundant and surrounding. May it be so for you, with you, and in service to collective liberation. I'm MJ Barclay. Thanks for journeying with me in these labors of love. I shall...